0: For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 4, the Psalm of David. All right, so last week we we just paid attention to verse 1. Um, So as I've been going through this, it seems as if this is uh, a prayer of David. But then this sort of interjection in the middle of the psalm to where he speaks to men outside of his uh, prayer with the Lord. Um, And so that's where we pick up today. So verse 1, we saw his prayer, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, I do want to remind us of one thing because we're going to see it again. And so I want to see the repetitive, the repetitive repetitiveness of this uh, this truth. He commands, in a sense, using a, uses an imperative in verse one: "Answer me when I call." Now we've told our kids, "You better answer me," but that's not what God, that's not what David was doing. He wasn't, you know, he 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 was stating it in an imperative in a command. But we knew that he could – we, we understood as we looked at it last week that David was more or less making the statement uh, of the truth that when he called as one who is righteous, that God answers the righteous. Um, and if you go and flip through Psalm, the Psalms, you see this over and over and over again, how the psalmist – or we, we saw it in a couple other places last week – that when a, a godly person, a saint, a righteous one or an upright person calls out to God, the 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 action res- or the action taken by God is always to respond, is to answer. It's just the way this is the way it's wrote in the New, or in the Psalms and even in the New Testament. Um so it's good for us to keep in our mind. But we also understand as we finish verse 1 that David is not presumptuous into thinking that he is righteous and that God will answer him because he is such a righteous man. He told us in verse 1 that God is the God of his righteousness. And he cries out in the end of that first verse, be gracious to me. It's a humble Expression or understanding that David is righteous only because of the grace of God, who is the only one who is right. I've been talking to Nora the last couple um uh, for about the last week, and we've been talking about some things and we were talking about the word righteous. She goes, I like the way you define righteous when you just say it means right. And I was like, you know what? It's just pretty simple. It's just right. And the only one who is 100% right is the Lord, right? So, right? Right. Okay. All right, so now we get to verse 2. This is where sort of the interjection, it doesn't seem as if there's, it's a prayer unto the Lord, but David is speaking out to men. Um, and he starts in verse 2, O men, or son of men, son of man, Sons of man, uh, it's translated in a few different ways. Um, he says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Now, we're assuming David is probably still writing out of conflict. Because you remember in Psalm 3, who was after him? You remember who was after David in Psalm 3? Absalom, and Absalom is his son, but who did Absalom turn against David? All of Israel. Or, you know? And so, But we also, if you know David's um, history, it always seems like he's in trouble with somebody. And, and so we see a lot of Psalms from David when he's speaking about those who are doing things against him. His enemy, the wicked who are coming in after him. And those sort of things. Well, he says in verse 2, O oh, oh men, um, or men of rank, or sons of men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? So, you, you kind of work this interpretation a few different ways. There are a lot of times when David writes a psalm or a psalmist here writes a psalm that they, they're declaring on behalf of God. Okay, there, there are many times in the psalms where the psalmist is writing, but they're speaking sort of prophetically on behalf of God. And some take this to, for David to be doing that. For David to be speaking on behalf of God, how long shall my honor Uh, Some translations, glory, and we'll look at that in just a second, be turned into shame. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So that's one possibility. The other possibility is David is speaking on, not on behalf of God, but on about himself and those who are seeking to do this to him. Uh, but ultimately we know, and David knows, that if men, wicked men, are looking to do this to him who is God's anointed, they are also uh, doing this unto the Lord. Uh, if you if you just stick with the last interpretation, that this is David speaking about men who are looking to do shame or bring reproach against him, it, it sort of makes a little sense, Uh Well, it does make sense, and both make sense. But there's one thing that stuck out to me as I was reading this uh, that brought me back to Psalm 3. Notice he says, how long shall my, and my version says, honor, be turned into shame? But a lot of other translations say, how long shall my glory be turned into shame? Now, one thing we learned in Psalm 3, just like David's righteousness, his glory was from... The Lord. Look at Psalm 3, verse 3. So in the midst of conflict, in the midst of his son trying to turn his whole, just this mutiny, turning the whole nation against him. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. And we we mentioned glory being the weightiness of. Of something, the importance, the, the 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 meat of the issue, right? And so what what is good and glorious about David comes from the Lord. Now, what are they attacking? His glory, his honor. And he says, these men are trying to turn my glory and honor into shame. Well, if we connect the dots and the Lord is his glory, then this is also attack on the Lord. He says uh, at the end of two, "How long will you love vain words and seek after lies?" So their acts, that the, the things that they're attempting to do against David in turning his glory and honor into shame or reproach, is they're doing it through uh, futility or vain words and through lies. uh, the the ESV says how long will you love vain words and seek after lies and so all of their attempts all of their acts are basically founded in wickedness and uselessness now you wonder if that vanity could actually be about uh, the quality of their attack or the fact that it just ain't going to work And maybe a little bit of both. Right? And so, again, we see this understanding, and we're just going to unfold a little bit more and more, especially in verse 3, of God's protection over not just his anointed, which in this sense was David, but in his anointed and all who are united to his anointed. Now, I'm making a connection to this morning. Remember, in Christ, right? So, not only does God care for the king of Israel, David, and is going to protect him and answer him, on New Testament flip side, Jesus is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased, right? So all of that, all of that relationship between David, David is the mediator between the Lord and Israel. Jesus is the mediator between the Father and His and His church, the body. And so we can see God's relationship to all the people of God. Now that's where we get to verse three. Keeping in mind, these men, these sons of men, he's talking about, verse three, <clears throat> he says, the Lord, but but no, and that but no is almost sort of that, you know, that. Uh, not sarcasm, but sort of that that poke at them. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So if you think, when you see the word godly in the Old Testament, you could really just say it in the sense of like what we call saints in the New Testament. And all throughout... Psalms and some other places, that word for godly um, is also translated Saints. and ultimately what are the godly or what are saints but they are the people of God. the children of God, the church, the body I mean the, the, those those nouns are all interconnected to describe those who follow after the Lord. Who trust in the Lord, which we'll see <clears throat> later. So, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. Um, again, connecting it back to Christ and the new, and what we spoke about a little bit this morning. Um, let's see. I think in Psalm 16. Okay, flip over to Psalm 16, and that word for godly pops up again. I'm gonna. Here's a little. Here's a fun little exercise. I'm going to read the English, and you tell me which English word is actually the Hebrew word for godly. See if you can get it. Verse 10 of Psalm 16. Godly as in a noun, not in an adjective, right? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. It might be more than one word. holy one right right and that's what we call saints and then that's the that's the actual definition the greek definition of of saints in the new testament holy one and so but here's the interesting part does that verse sound familiar to anybody outside of psalm 16 verse 10 acts 2 peter's sermon at pentecost as he's speaking about the resurrection of the lord jesus the holy one right so, again, this understanding of our union, our connection—like here, here—don't do this. But raise your—this is a trick, trick exercise. Raise your hand if you're godly. If you raise your hand, we might have some problems. But the here is the thing: as Christians that's what you are. But why? Because you're in the Holy One. You're in Christ. You're united to him, right? And so Jesus, the Messiah, gets the same gets the same attribution, the same name as we do, Holy One. But whoa, we have to understand that that is an adopted name, right? That we're we we're brought into this sort of in that idea of adoption, that 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 attribution, that name is granted to us based on the holiness of Christ and by faith we get to share in that in his in in his blessings in his enjoyments in his rewards which kind of goes back to what we talked about this morning now I'm just I'm getting lost a little bit let's go back to Psalm 2 Psalm 4 I'm really getting lost Now, I want to spend a minute or two thinking about this idea of set apart. Now, if you've if you're a student of the New Testament, you sort of got this image or this thought in your head that set apart is holy or saint, right? And it is. But in in the new or in the old testament it's not the exact same word it it literally is to to distinguish okay which holiness in the new testament is to set apart is to distinguish there's a lot of overlap now the first place if you look if you do a word search a hebrew word search for that for that word that is translated set apart it first takes place in exodus go to exodus eight. There's a few places in Exodus, and I want you to see a distinction, keeping in mind that he says in Psalm 4 verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. There are we could do probably tons of sermons on that one sentence. Uh, Exodus eight Verse 22. So we're smack dab in the middle of the plagues. Okay? And we're in Egypt. Smack dab in the middle of the 10 plagues. Exodus 8 22. And what are we about to deal with? Um, the flies. The flies. In 22, I believe we've got the Lord saying to Moses. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. So when when, when um, Joseph brought his family to Egypt at the end of Genesis, uh, they got they got a good they got there were shepherds, and so, I believe I'm saying this right. And so the Pharaoh at that time gave them the land of Goshen, which was a pasture field place and so there was a separation between Israel and Egypt. It, uh, the Egyptians they were in Goshen. I think I think I got that right. I might be wrong. Um, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, that would be the Israelites, so that no swarms of the flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Where does oh, he said Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. He has set apart his people. Uh, Exodus nine. Now we're in the plague where the livestock die. Verse four. But the Lord will make a distinction, that's that Hebrew word for set apart. He will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Now, one more. No, two more. Exodus 11, verse 7. Now we're on the 10th plague, the final plague. But not, a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He has set apart Israel from Egypt. Now, just so this isn't a practice in futility, and you're like, oh yeah, you just found the same Hebrew word over and over again. Um Uh, I wasn't planning on... This hadn't crossed my mind, but I want to see if I can find this for you. Give me just a second. Go to chapter 7. Go back to chapter 7. So God is making a distinction. God is making a distinction... I think this is probably done twice, but I can only find it here in seven verse one. And the Lord said to Moses so why? The- Here's the question. Is God making a distinction between his people and anyone else just for the sake of making a distinction? Or does he have a purpose behind it? That's what I want us to consider. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know... That I am the Lord. That's the purpose for God's distinction of any people. Ever. Ever. It is it is for his glory and in his kindness and his grace, those whom he makes the distinction, it is for their good. All right, so we'll go make our way as we make our way back. Stop at Exodus 33. There's just one more. So Exodus 33. You know we've made it out of Egypt. We've we we've um, uh, crossed the Red Sea. We're at the mountain. We're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Still, I believe yes. Uh, we've even had the golden calf incident. So, let's keep that in mind. Again, hey Israel, raise your hand if you're godly. Right? But here, but notice what God does. Exodus 33 or what what Moses says, verse 16. For how shall it be known, because they're going into the into the new land, the promised land. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? You know what? That's a good word. That, well, that could also be translated favor. Grace. Grace. Okay. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, set apart? So here's, here's the thing I want you to understand as we think about god setting apart the godly for himself the fact that god is present with us that's that's the root of our godliness we don't david is not saying i have been so godly all the years of my life that god has had to set me apart no, by no means. He understands, Moses understands, the distinction that is made, the setting apart of people is the presence of God, the favor of God, the grace of God. That is it. But those whom have seen his favor and found his favor are drawn and transformed and given the mercy and grace to follow him and to live godly. Uh, and so we've got to see the humility and understanding that it is not our behavior that calls causes God to separate us from the world. But it is his favor and his presence within us that gives us or that sets us apart from all other people. And then um, and what and what's what's David doing? He's ultimately making this contrast between the uh, the men in verse two, and and the godly in verse three. Here's um here's what Matthew Henry wrote in in uh, about this passage, verse three. If I can see the mess of my writing here. Oh, it's because I didn't write it. I took a screenshot. Hang on a second. Here's what Matthew Henry said on this one. Godly men are God's separated, sealed ones. He knows those that are his and has set his image and superscription upon them. He distinguishes them with, here it is, uncommon favor. Uncommon favor. And that that brought to my mind a familiar passage, a familiar passage in First Peter chapter two, which has some interesting language. Um but helps us to under but helps us to see this a little bit from a different perspective. Peter writes regarding the church, the godly. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, your translation might say a peculiar people. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you've got three eyeballs. It means That you're a special possession. You're a special possession. That's what that word peculiar, it could mean odd, but it also um, in the Greek has the idea of an acquired possession, a special acquired possession, a purchased possession. And we all know the price, right? We all know that we have been bought with a price, uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's many other places that we could look and see that, but we we do we just we understand that it is the, the the presence of the Lord and His uncommon favor that set apart the godly, not their behavior or their um, way of life. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, let's just keep on going here. Um, and then he. He re-emphasizes at the end of verse 3 what he emphasized in the, in verse 1 the Lord hears me when I call that's the truth of the godly, the righteous, the upright God hears them and answers them when they call, that's something that we cannot forget, because when ultimately when we forget that we're forgetting about who God is and the way he operates, so What ought ought this truth to do to a godly person? Well, sort of what falls out of what David says helps us to see uh, the behavior of the godly and knowing that they've been set apart by God himself, for himself. Number one, it should give them confidence in their place. And that is set apart for the sake of the Lord. Confidence in their place. Now... People tend to get take this and can go to a place of arrogance. But you've got to remember, if you're set apart for Him, there's absolutely no arrogance whatsoever, right? We've got to remember the place that we've been set apart. Um, and then ultimately, that uh, having confidence in the work of God and setting apart the godly. Uh, stirs up the the faith to live by the promises of God. Hence, the Lord hears when I call to Him. He knows that. Um, so he's got confidence in his place in the Lord. Number two, uh, the godly who've been set apart by the Lord know that they are called, um, they are to call the wicked to godliness. Verse four, um, now, is... This one kind of shook me up a little bit because I didn't quite get it. But in the ESV, verse 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. And so now I'm thinking, okay, is David just giving me some, some wisdom here? Or what? Are, are we out of context with what we are just talking about? But no, what David's doing in verse 4 and verse 5 is calling these men... To repentance right he this is when i I read this i was like oh he's just given given this the psalm reader some wisdom here be angry and do not sin ponder on your own hearts on the beds and be silent no he's calling these men who are looking to turn his glory into shame who are using vain vain uh, vanity and seeking after lies he's calling them to repentance to not sin he's calling them to meditate on the law of the lord Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now, ponder, does that remind you of a psalm that we've already looked at? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I don't know, maybe in some of y'all's translations in verse 4 it might say Meditate. But that ponder in verse 4 of chapter 4 is the same Hebrew word of Psalm 1 verse 2 pertaining to meditating on the law of the Lord. So he's calling these men to not get agitated to the point of sin. He's calling them to ponder, meditate on the wall of the Lord as they are in their homes and as they are in silent, Be still and know the Lord. In verse 5, he's calling them to worship the, worship the Lord rightly. Offer right sacrifices. Now that's a, it is a good uh, template for us to remember those things. Be angry, do not sin. Um, meditate on the on the law of the Lord, and worship the Lord rightly. But David is calling these men to repentance, to fall into these and do these three things, and ultimately. He's calling them to do what we spoke of this morning at the end of verse five and put your trust in the Lord. But your tr- believe, believe in God. Because if you're doing verse four and the first part of verse five, that that is that's putting your trust in the Lord. OK. Let's move on a little bit again. A little bit of a shift of direction. Um, still speaking about men outside, you know, not not himself, but those who are on the outside. Verse six, but he is praying again, though. Okay, in verse six, seven, and eight, there are many who say, quote, and he's quoting these many. And this is the quote. Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Okay, now this one this one is interesting. Um, and I, as I was reading it and I was doing some study, it could have gone two different ways. That there are many who are looking for someone or some deity... Or even the Lord to do them some good. And now David is praying the the numbers six blessing upon them. Lift up the light of your your face upon us, O Lord. Uh, come on, how's it start? Um, how's the benediction go in number six? May the Lord bless you and keep you and make your face make his face to shine upon you, may he lift up his countenance. You know that that blessing from number six. And so it could be he, and I, I saw some commentators say this, that he's acknowledging these people who are lacking, um, are pessimistic in their current situation. Who will show us some good? And then David's response is to pray on their behalf the prayer of number six. Uh, and he's asking the Lord to lift up your light on of your face upon us, O oh Lord, show them grace. And then there's the others, and I'm, I fall into this camp, who's, who think that this is sort of a lack of faith, condescending quote of scripture for those who are not happy about their situation. Okay, so we have David in this prayer reminding God of his promises that he's learn from his word, from the law. But i it seems as if verse 6 is these people who are not happy with the way things are going and in sort of sarcasm take number 6 and say, When are you going to do something for us, Lord? And I'll tell you why I think that. And I think it's because what he says in the next verse. Because he shows us where these people are seeking joy. Verse 7, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they, they referring to verse 6, than they when their grain and their wine abounds. What does that mean? They're getting drunk. They're seeking joy in drink. Wine and grain is a reference to Alcohol. And he says, he, he, okay, so think about that in the sense of, go back into 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. End of quote. So he quotes them, from my understanding, he quotes them saying that. But then he's like he gets in a side conversation with the Lord. And he says, you've put more joy in my heart than they when they're getting drunk. And they're seeking happy. That's that's who that's how they're seeking their joy and their happiness. And they're looking around and they're telling you to do some good for them. <laughs> when you seek happiness through the Lord, not the things of the world, you're going to be less likely One, to be discontent and complain about the current situation around you. And then blame the Lord that He hadn't done enough for you. I think that's what David's trying to get at. So then he finishes in verse 8... With basically a a statement that needs no commentary. Look closely. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I think we can all get that. So that that concludes Psalm 4. Any thoughts or questions? Or need some clarification on some things. And I'll just be honest. There's going to be a lot of times in these Psalms where I'm going to give you a couple different options. um, Because as Dan said this morning, I'm a fallible guy. And I'm not always going to come to... And and God doesn't expect us to understand every word I mean, because then what would we be if we if we could completely understand and grasp everything that the Lord has ever said in his scriptures, that would make us right on par with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we don't try. But the problem is. Is we're still in this body of death, right? We're we're still we're still still, we've still got a handicap. So there are going to be times if there is someone who says Oh yeah, I know. That means, that means. 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 That you know, and on and on and on. Be wary. Be wary. Um, and so there'll be a lot of times when we're in these psalms where where we'll run into that, and we'll, we'll we can look at the, a couple of different options. And I typically only bring to you options f- if if I'm having trouble with it and I've sought some help from commentators. I will only bring you options that come from godly trustworthy uh men um and lord and then you you can take that and and pray through it and study it yourself and uh and as we said this morning sunday school not not to be deceived by those who are trying to lead us astray so anything any thoughts on psalm four uh as we close the book on this one uh Number five is a doozy. Um, all right, that's that's all I have, uh, brother Dan. Will you dismiss us in prayer?